Well, can I just say, um, it's been a, a real joy to be with you today. Thanks so much for welcoming me, having me back. It's been really, really lovely. And thank you for your witness and for your hard work for the gospel. I hope that um, the session we have now will sort of bring things together and, and sort of lead to some good discussion in times of prayer, which I know we've got following this. So I hope that's, um, that's really useful. How can we corporately as a wider church, individually as small churches, and perhaps individually as Christians, change the world. How do you? In the early days of Apple, Steve Jobs was looking for someone to take the company to the next level. He wanted a man by the name of John Scully. At the time, Scully was the CEO of Pepsi. No one in the Apple HR department had managed to land John Scully. Uh, in the end, they had no choice. They turned to Steve Jobs and said, right, we need you to land the big fish. Jobs apparently booked a very smart venue overlooking Central Park. It was the early 1980s, and he arranged to meet Scully there. The pivotal point of the conversation involved Jobs turning to Scully and saying, look, what it comes down to is this. Do you want to sell sugar water for the rest of your life? Or do you want to come with me and change the world? John Scully uh, joined Apple and he took the company from 80 million, which it was in those days, to 8 billion in quite a short time. Well, I'd like to suggest that changing the world is exactly what Jesus wants, even at this point in the introduction to his sermon. I mean, he's going to go on and speak for some time, as you know, the chapters to come. But even at this point, he ends with a big vision. I think this is the end, the reading we just had, the end of the formal sort of introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. Those famous four verses bring it all to completion. This is Jesus' blueprint for a new world order. Not a top-down list about things we should and shouldn't do. Instead, a ground-up initiative, a personal commissioning to be part of a mission, the ultimate goal of which is to recruit people to change the world and to join God's family for eternal life. And Jesus achieves all of that with the most wonderfully economical use of words. A handful of sentences culminating these two well-known popular metaphors, salt and light. And the challenge to us as we finish here today, to any who would follow Jesus, well, to take on board what Jesus is saying. And not to be fooled by the apparent simplicity. It does sound so straightforward, doesn't it? Salt and light. But instead to ponder, to accept the profound, radical implications of what this means. And we should be in, in no doubt what Jesus intends is for those listening, disciples in the front row, wider crowd listening, for those listening to take the gospel out and change the world. Look at how it ends, verse 16, so that, there's the sort of the purpose clause, so that they, that's the world, may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is heaven. In other words, the world around converted. And the more I've read these verses, the more I've been convinced that we need to take both metaphors together. The sword and the light function as a, as a double, as a pair, a single block of teaching. I think to try and split them apart doesn't really do justice to what's being said. You remember this morning, of course, we've gone through the, um, the famous 
blessed sayings, blessed are, blessed are. Somebody um, asked over lunch, you know, what, what does this word Beatitudes mean? Well, as far as I'm aware, it's just a title that the ESV Bible and a few other Bibles have given. You can cross it out. It's not actually part of God's word. I think it basically means it's a collective term for blessings. Um, a collective term for blessings. Here is Jesus explaining the standards of the new world order. Incidentally, if it's not your Bible, you probably don't want to cross it out. Um, <laughs> you get, you get the, the idea. Here is the commissioning, the recruiting, the changing of the world is in view. Salt and light together represent everything that's been said so far. It's a summing up. You remember we've had the, the Beatitudes split into the attitude and the conduct. That was session one and session two. Attitude, conduct. And Jesus um, demands the attitude and conduct now cashes out salt and light to the world. Three observations to close our time together. Firstly, the personal challenge. In both cases, Jesus is once again bringing this teaching to bear on the individual. Look at verse 13, you. Look at verse 14, you. He wants this to sink in. It becomes deeply personal. First, we need to, do you remember as we've, as we've thought about how this teaching works, as he intends us to take this teaching out to the world, we need to every day refresh ourselves with the fact that the standards that Jesus asks for are impossible. This is the basis of the gospel because this is the basis of grace. We'll never find the mercy on offer if we don't find the grace that's given because we can't do what Jesus asks. And Jesus lays out something that is humanly speaking not possible. The first vital step, why it drives us to depend on Jesus. Second, live the standard. You remember, this is recapping now, isn't it? Living um, depends on, on Jesus. We depend on Jesus and we don't just stop there. We take the standard out and we reflect those standards to the world. Profound, countercultural lifestyles. It's attractive. It adorns the gospel. But in and of itself, it's not enough. It can't just be... Um, walking examples we mustn't fall short of being walking examples but we mustn't stop there hence crucially third point see speaking up explaining the sa- the standard you see if in the end people are going to be converted what jesus wants they need to contend with the truth they need to have the truth explained that's why as a, again we said this morning um the the gospel of matthew ends with a great commissioning teach the world, disciple making disciples. In the end, the gospel must be explained. All three points are essential for Christians to explain, fundamental to authentic Christian discipleship. So, under this personal challenge, um, consider what it would mean if we don't take on board these points. I think it's quite interesting to highlight it all. So, um, consider what would happen if you were to, I put that on the handout there, if you were to leave out A, so if no A, what would that mean? Okay, so you, you've forgotten about the impossibility and instead you just sort of, um, you just try to live a life that looks quite Christian. <laughs> there's, a, there's a shaking of the heads going on because yes, it can't work, but it, nevertheless, it is something that often happens because what that means is you probably adopted, uh, you know, one has adopted, I'm not suggesting any, anyone here has, but this is what you see around in sort of um, what I sometimes describe as cathedral religion, the idea of turning up and being part of an organized Christian event, cultural Christianity. It's easy to sort of look the part, isn't it? It's easy to, to walk the walk if you've left out A and you're just doing B and C. Well, you might even be quite passionate about sort of recruiting others to come and join your sort of cultural crusade. And you bring people along. Roman Catholicism classically has missed out A and is all about B 
and see. Door-knocking cults would fall into a similar category. I don't know if you've ever got into conversations with um, Jehovah's Witnesses, but they have these sort of checkpoints around the city where you can't get past unless you have a conversation. They're trying to recruit. They're not interested in grace. They want to understand and they want to get numbers. Passion, but ultimately no grace, no dependency on Jesus. What about if you leave out B? Okay, truly converted, truly converted, but not going to the point of, of actually displaying faith. Keeping, keeping what you believe private, public, uh, not going public. Um, what would that mean? Well, it might be because uh, we have come to the conviction that our faith is a personal thing. And it's not for the public realm. You know, my employer expects me to do my job. It's got nothing to do with my faith, and I'll do my faith at the end of the day. This sort of um, secular, sacred divide. Um, well, in the end, at best, that sort of so-called Christianity is no better than a monk or a nun retreating to the secluded life of the monastery or the nunnery. And at worst, um, that might be at best, I guess, at worst, it's going to be this sort of double life. Because ultimately the, the lifestyle that people will see will just look like anybody else. There'll be nothing sort of adorning about a, a, a Christian like that. A private faith that doesn't go public, that looks like the world, well, becomes a little bit ridiculous. What about if you leave out C? Okay, you, you've, you've, you're truly converted and you go quite public in terms of the way that you, you, know, you, you say no to various things. Um, you're quite happy to um, lead a, a lifestyle that looks Christian, but you never explain to anybody why. Uh, what would that make you? A silent witness, I guess, which I suppose is probably an oxymoron, isn't it? A silent witness. But if we go quiet, um, that does have a huge advantage. You see, keeping what we believe to ourselves shelters us from the persecution Jesus says will necessarily come. So the persecution, free life, I mean, that feels quite attractive, doesn't it? You know, I do the right thing, I believe the right thing, and I commend the gospel with my lifestyle, but nobody has a clue why. And when they ask, we're a bit shy. Um, in the end, that will make us, if we fall into that sort of category, that will make us very resentful. Why? Well, because you'll be living things out fruitlessly. And you'll be, for example, I think this was exactly what happened to me through a phase of life before I really understood that Jesus was my Lord and that I, was, um, I, I could do nothing but explain. I think I, you know, I kept my Christianity to myself in my um, early sort of teenage days. And what that means is when you make decisions of lifestyle, but with no explanation, you decide, for example, you're not gonna party like the world, and you don't get drunk, and maybe you don't do drugs and things like that and um, all of those sort of things. But in the end, there's no fruit from any of that. There's just sort of building resentfulness. Um, we can't be of use to Jesus in the end. We can't make a difference to the world until all three points sink in. Remember what Jesus is doing. He's trying to change the world at this point, a new world order. And while speaking to um, large crowds like Jesus is doing can be hugely effective. I mean, Passion for Life was great, wasn't it? There's lots of churches behind the country you know, um, brought large groups of, of sort of non-Christians uh, together and the gospel was explained and, and, and that was wonderful. Nevertheless, anecdotally, one-to-one -one work can be hugely effective. 
I was reminded of an illustration I heard years ago, which really brings this um, to bear. I think this is super encouraging, okay? I've done the math three times, just um, in case you, any of you um, uh, are nervous about this sort of thing. Let me explain how it works. Right now in the world, there are 7.8 billion people, okay? That's according to Google. One method of reaching the world would be to take the largest seated uh, sort of, I don't know, uh, stadium in this country, I, I think that's Wembley, 90,000 capacity. Have you been to Wembley? It's, it's a huge place, isn't it? Absolutely surrounded, 90,000 people. If you wanted to reach the world's population and you had the privilege of being guaranteed that a different person would come and attend and you had a packed stadium every night and you could explain what you believed to everybody, you know how long it would take? Every single day, back to back, 237 years to reach 7.8 billion people. By contrast, this is the encouraging point, okay? By contrast, if you were to explain to just one person and you were to give them a gospel, um, a message, the truth that was so compelling that they just thought, oh wow, that makes sense. Everything that Jesus says, that makes sense. I'm gonna go and tell somebody myself the next day. And you also tell somebody the next day. And they decide to tell one person the next day and so on. In other words, exponential growth, one person only per day, it would take just 34 days to reach the world's population. That's incredible, isn't it? The effect that one-to-one personal evangelism can have. So don't underestimate the effect you can have. Don't for a second think that you've got to aim for a Billy Graham type sort of crusade to, to make a difference in this world. There's the personal challenge. The application of all of this, well, we can't hide behind an initiative that somebody else is doing. It's so easy to do that. Again, something I've fallen into the trap of doing many times. Just because the, the sort of the workplace CU or the um, university CU or, or, or the church or, or, or some organization that you're vaguely attached to, just because they're putting on an event, that doesn't absolve you of the personal opportunity to be engaged personally. Jesus wants us to see that we have a part to play. Do you remember the individual challenge right at the beginning? You are the salt. You are the light. Secondly, the warning. The warning that Jesus gives. It is interesting. Um, again, huge economy of words. Jesus labours the negatives, which is interesting. Uh, look at verse 13. Salt without taste. End of verse 13. It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out, trampled under people's feet. What about light? Verse 15. Light a lamp, put it under a basket. What's the point in that? Imagine being out in the, in the woods with some friends and you sort of, um, you know, it's pitch dark and there's no, there's no sort of uh, light pollution from a nearby city. So you cannot see a thing and you say, hey, to your friends, don't worry, I've got a torch. You bring out your torch, probably on your phone, isn't it? And you light it. And, and for a second they can see and then you immediately cover it up so they cannot see a thing. That's what Jesus says we're like if we're Christians and we just keep everything to ourselves. It's a pointless situation to be in. In his autobiography, Mahatma Gandhi writes that in his student days, he was truly interested in the Bible. He was deeply touched by the Gospels. He was very well read, apparently, and he seriously considered becoming a Christian. Christianity seemed to offer, he said, a real solution to the caste system that was dividing people in India. And so one Sunday, he wandered along to his local church and he decided that he would have a conversation with the minister of his local church and find out 
how to receive instruction in the ways of salvation. That's what he wrote in his autobiography. Well, when he arrived, he was refused entry to the church. There were a number of stewards on the door who looked at Gandhi and said, I'm sorry, this isn't the right place for you. They said, you should go off and find out about Christianity from your own people. Gandhi went away and he writes, if Christians have caste differences also, I might as well remain a Hindu, because at least I understand them. The men on the door. I mean, what a tragedy. The men on the door. Tasteless salt, hidden light, useless. You see, there is a danger in sitting lightly to this. Everything we do, knowingly, unknowingly, will have an impact on others. And so finally, as we close, being salt and light. Verse 13 again, you are the salt of the earth. There are a number of different uses of salt in the Bible. It's quite hard to sort of home in on exactly what Jesus intends. Today, of course, people will often jump to the conclusion that because of the way we use salt, well, something doesn't have very much flavor or taste, and so people want to sort of season it. Ah, Jesus must be sort of saying that we need to go out and be a seasoning to the world, be interesting. Um, go and spice the world up a little bit. That must be what Jesus is saying. Now, that can't be wrong. Nothing in Christianity suggests that Christians should be boring or dull. Quite the opposite. We should be noticeable. Uh, we should be up to contend for what is truth. But it can't just stop with being sort of a little, adding a little bit of flavor. Um, look at the phrase again. You are the salt of the earth. The use of the salt metaphor that Jesus intends must be determined by what the earth is. Salt of the earth. We can't just sort of say, oh, it must be a little bit of seasoning and we'll put the seasoning on the earth and everything, everyone will be happy. What do the earth, the earth, that means people. What do the people of the earth most need? It's not that the people of the earth are dull and need seasoning. It's that the people of earth, humanity, the world outside. They're on a collision course with God's judgment. They don't need seasoning. They need salvation. Salt is an essential preservative. And of course, that would have been the primary use of salt in Jesus' day. Take a piece of meat, rub salt in it, you preserve its life. You stop it deteriorating. That will help us a little bit as we come to apply, as we close. But light, of course, um, is a very similar, sort of forms a very similar uh, illustration. Light of the world. It's not just to make people see things a little bit better. Not just to provide clarity, but because fundamentally there is no light in this world apart from the light that Jesus gives. This was a big theme back in the first few chapters of Matthew. He explains, quoting from Isaiah, people in this world have been walking in the shadow of darkness, the shadow of death. That's the default situation of the world around. You are people of light, shadow of death, shadow of darkness, people of light. Clearly, the application is one of life-giving. To be salt and light, therefore, means to be men and women of the gospel. In this context, let me be clear, to be men of the gospel. Jesus speaking to the gathered crowd, almost certainly entirely men, knowing Jesus, telling others about Jesus. And so the metaphors become very helpful. Salt, preserving that which will ruin light, illuminating that which cannot be seen. The application must affect everything, mustn't it? It must affect the way that we act in this world, the way that we speak in this world. The little things matter, the big things are crucial. 
those ushers on the door. Who, I mean, as they woke up that morning, who, who could have ever told them the opportunity that they would have had? If you think about the sort of the world reach, the influence that someone like Gandhi had on this world, imagine if he'd become a Christian, useless in the end, those ushers. So the challenge includes all of our actions, even the small ones. It should shape our ambitions in the end, never falling short of telling people about Jesus. This is the way that he plans to change the world. He wants the disciples to take the message out. And sure enough, that is exactly what they did. And what an impact it had. It had an impact in so many different ways. And lots of Christian writers have documented the change, the impact that the gospel has had on the world. Um, Martin Lloyd-Jones writes very sort of comprehensively on this subject. And he goes back to the time of the Christian revival and says that in, in the sort of 17th, 18th century in this country, and, and said, you know, there was such a sort of, such a growth in true Christianity in this country that it couldn't but have a massive effect on the structures of this country. And so there was a, a few years back, we were all talking about people like Will, William Wilberforce and the Clapham sect and people like that. The huge impact they had on the social structures of this country. Why? The only reason any of that good change happened was because of the conversion that had taken place before. And that's fascinating, isn't it? Good things start to happen in this world, which can only be a spin-off benefit. William Wilberforce, Christians are like a restraining influence on society, he says. And so as Christians, as we think about our opportunity, our mission, well, we should be encouraged, liberated to live a Christian life. Because, of course, it's the only way to be useful in this world, in the end. It saves people. And it does more to improve the moral fabric of society than anything else can. Don't underestimate the effect that you can have, that you can have individually. Don't think that you're just a sort of a, a tiny little cog in the wheel. Jesus wants you to go and affect the change that he intends. Think about the city that many of us work in, the area of influence that you have in your workplace, within your family, within the community. You have been placed there by Jesus to effect change. It's such a wonderfully liberating mission. We haven't been recruited by Jesus to go around and tell people what they should and shouldn't do, which of course is what the world thinks Christians are there to do. Instead, we need to model distinct lives, a life which has direction and purpose and hope, a life which in the end is governed by the gospel and a life which seeks to share this gospel with the world around. People will notice. People will ask you what your life stands for. Gandhi, towards the end of his life, was asked by a Christian missionary, what is the greatest hindrance to Christianity in India? What stops it going out? Gandhi, without hesitation, said, Christians. The well-known evangel um, evangelical preacher George Campbell Morgan of a bygone era now, he once said that the church did the most for the world when the church was least like the world. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Well, there's some things to... Think about in our time of discussions coming up in a few minutes. Why don't I just pause for a moment, give you time just to reflect on that, the chance to discuss it through, and then I'll close in prayer.
so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Heavenly Father, we do pray that our lives lived out in this world as your people will have a profound impact on those around. In the end, we do ask that you will give us confidence and boldness to speak the truth. And we pray that you will have mercy on the world and that you will bring many to a saving understanding of the Lord Jesus. For your glory we pray. Amen.